Lord, thank you for your perfect love for us. Free us from the list of expectations we place on ourselves. Help us to enter into your grace, your total acceptance and delight in us. You are holy. You are able. Thank you for the privilege of worshiping together this morning. Thank you for the gift of relationships, community, and family connection to each other, revealing your love for us and transforming us to be more like you. Thank you for your deep and perfect love for us, your omnipotence, your mercy, your vision of the big picture that we can lean into. Still our minds this morning to receive your spirit through your word. Thank you for Eugene, his love for you, and his love for us. Thank you for the insights you've given him in this passage. May we receive your word with your intentions. Open our hearts and our hands to receive you and your perfect love for us. May you be glorified in this place this morning, and may your words percolate in our minds and seep into our souls. We pray for those who have been affected by the recent storms, who have had damage to their homes, or who have no homes to shelter them. Give them warmth, safety, and hope. We pray for those who are broken, lonely, or not well, that you would heal them and give them hope and encouragement. Thank you, Lord, that you know how to love us and are present here with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture reading this morning is Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, and this is from the New Living Translation. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. Eugene, could you come up and bless us with your teaching? Thank you, Mark and Michelle. Let's give them a hand once again. Well, brothers and sisters, we've made it to the end of our series in Colossians, not the end of the letter. Uh, we'll be back for some more in May, God willing. Um, and I'd like to thank you all just for your kindness in receiving this batch of sermons from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. Uh, I really appreciate the grace that you've shown me, the openness with which you have received me each week. Um, I thank you for your humility. I know full well that I am only just beginning to understand what the Word of God has to say. Uh, preaching is one of the ways I get to explore it, and I'm just very humbled and grateful that you all would join me in this journey of exploration. So thank you for that. Now, understanding the Word of God really is a journey, isn't it? It's a lifelong journey of study and reflection and application. If it was simply about learning information, we could be finished in a semester or two. But truly understanding the Word of God takes time. 
It requires going beyond information to integration. It means allowing the Word of God to challenge our assumptions and beliefs like a two-edged sword cutting between soul and spirit and exposing our innermost thoughts and desires, as Michelle just read for us. Understanding the Word of God means allowing the Word of God to dissect everything we bring to it, often without even realizing it. And many people do not realize what they bring with them to the Bible. They assume that reading is a rather straightforward affair. The Bible conveys its truth, and we receive its truth. We might need to look up the occasional definition or some background information, but otherwise, there is a direct transmission of truth from the Bible to the reader. But the reality is much more complicated. When we come to the Word of God, we don't come as blank canvases. No, much of our canvases are already filled with assumptions and beliefs about what the Bible says. And these assumptions and beliefs come from many, sometimes conflicting, sources. Our parents, our culture, previous teachers, or even just ourselves and our experiences, whether conscious or unconscious. And where they do not align with the Word of God, our assumptions and beliefs can keep us from receiving the truth. They can create blind spots that prevent us from seeing all there is to be seen in the Bible. But unfortunately, it's even worse than that. Our brains are designed to find patterns and to simplify what we perceive. If, we, if what we perceive can be squeezed into a pre-existing set of assumptions and beliefs, that's what our brains will do every single time. So when we come to the Bible, what we already assume and believe often takes priority over what we actually encounter in it, causing us to see patterns and ideas that might not actually be there. We still receive some truth, but the gaps in our understanding get filled with pre-existing assumptions and beliefs, and we end up coming away from the Word of God thinking that our assumptions and beliefs have just been affirmed by it. In short, we end up mirror-reading the Bible. And perhaps some of us recognize this tendency in ourselves. And perhaps some of us see so some of us see ourselves mere reading the Bible, but we just don't realize it because it's never occurred to us that there might be more than one way to faithfully read certain passages of the Bible. Or perhaps some of us resist the idea that we should be critical of how we read the Bible because that sounds an awful lot like the first step towards a Bible-denying liberalism. Now this hits me on a very personal level, brothers and sisters. Among my theologically conservative friends, and I do have a few, I'm too liberal. Among my theologically liberal friends, I'm too conservative. But few of these friends ever seem to wonder whether or not my beliefs are biblical. I do have one friend who offered this encouragement to me. If both conservatives and liberals are mad at you, then you're probably on the right track. He wasn't just being cheeky, of course. He, he was reminding me that Christ found no theological home among the people of the first century, no matter how conservative or liberal they were. And that's because neither conservatism nor liberalism can contain the truth of Christ. The Word of God is bigger than any ism, and so much of its content is hidden from us to keep us humble and teachable and willing to allow it to cut between our soul and spirit and expose our innermost thoughts and desires. 
when the Spirit does reveal its truth to us. We are often tempted to turn the tables on the Word of God and to dissect it, to cut it to pieces, and to keep the pieces that support our positions and then ignore the rest. But this should not be. No, we must allow the Word of God to dissect us, our assumptions and our beliefs, however holy they may sound and however long they've been held. In other words, we must have faith to ask ourselves, what if I was wrong? And asking this question does require faith. To ask this question is to believe that we are saved not because of our theological perfection, but because while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, a truth that is repeated too often and too clearly throughout the Bible to call into question. It takes faith to ask if there is another way to read those passages that aren't so clear, that don't immediately fit into what we've assumed and believed. And so that's what I'd like for us to pray for now four pages into our sermon, as we finally arrive at two little verses that I have been in no hurry to teach since we began our study of Colossians. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you humbly like children, knowing that you welcome us and receive us despite what we don't know and despite what we can't see and despite how weak and fragile we are. God, you still accept us and love us as your children. So we come to you, Appa. Teach us, Lord. Teach us, speak to us, minister to us, and remind us of our unity in your one family. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh. <laughs> Let's read our passage for this morning in its entirety. Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Before we make any conclusions about what these verses mean, let's take inventory of what we know about them and about their original audience. These two verses and the seven after them comprise Paul's household code. In the ancient world, it was common for philosophers, politicians, and religious leaders to write household codes that people could use to govern their households. And by the word people, what we really mean is the word men. In the ancient world, the position of head of household was exclusively held by males. And in the Roman Empire, this wasn't merely a cultural tradition. Male headship was legally required. As Dr. Beth Allison Barr, the James Vardaman Professor of History at Baylor University, as she explains, male guardianship was Roman law. Wives legally had to submit to the authority of their husbands. Women could not own property or run businesses in their own right. Women could not conduct legal or financial transactions without a man acting on their behalf. This is the very definition of patriarchy, brothers and sisters. Social organization marked by the supremacy of the father in the clan or family, the legal dependence of wives and children, and the reckoning of descent and inheritance in the male line. Roman patriarchy was based on attitudes towards women broadly held by society and perpetuated by its leaders. Dr. Barr cites this reflection from the great philosopher Aristotle, and I say the word great in quotations. The male is by nature fitter for command than the female. The inequality between male and female is permanent. 
the courage of a man is shown in commanding, of a woman in obeying. Silence is a woman's glory, but this is not equally the glory of man. According to Aristotle, this inherent inequality extends beyond women's leadership capacity to their very nature, to their very composition. The female, Aristotle wrote, is, as it were, a deformed male. Yeah, yikes, indeed. (laughs) Because females are weaker and colder in their nature, we should look upon the female state as being, as it were, a deformity. This view was not exclusive to Aristotle. It was a commonly held belief shared by philosophers, politicians, writers, and even singers in Greco-Roman culture. The people of the first century lived and breathed this patriarchy. Aristotle meant little resistance, assigning men authority over the three main parts of the household as he saw them. Of household management, he wrote, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and father, we saw, rules over wife and children. Now, when Paul wrote his household code in Colossians 3, 18 to 4, 1, he patterned it after Aristotle's. Verses 18 and 19 concern wives and husbands. Verses 20 and 21 govern the child-father relationship. And Colossians 3, 22 to 4, 1 addresses slaves and masters. Structurally, then, Paul's household code reflected the patriarchy of his day. Not only that, but he seemed to offer the same commands Aristotle and company would have given. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents in everything. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And in each case, the husband, the parent in view, and the master was the man. At first glance, it would seem that Paul was not only following Greco-Roman culture and law, but adopting it into Christianity, codifying patriarchy into the word of God. And indeed, this is how much of the modern church has interpreted these verses. They affirm the patriarchy of Greco-Roman culture as something this fallen world happened to get right, though perhaps for the wrong reasons. And they import it into the church as something ordained by God. Men are superior to women in essence or in function. Men must therefore be the heads of their households, and women must submit, children must obey, and slaves must serve. This is apparently something the world has had right for millennia. And on this point, I must gently insist, patriarchy is real. I don't need to explain to women the challenges they face simply for existing in this world as women, but there seems to be a persistent hesitation or even outright denial among some men that women are still disadvantaged today. I don't have the time here to demonstrate exhaustively those disadvantages, but let me share one example that has surfaced recently, both in Christian and in secular news. It has been reported in recent years that the leadership of a prominent, and I really do mean prominent, church in Southern California has had a history of pressuring women to remain with their persistently and unrepentantly abusive husbands. Some of these women were physically abused by their husbands, while others caught their husbands having sexual intercourse with other women. 
Still others discovered that their husbands were sexually abusing their own children. These women who sought help from their church leadership were turned down every time. Each woman was commanded not to report her husbands, but to submit to them and to accept their imperfections, which they could be trusted to resolve over time. Predictably, this resulted in continued and even intensified abuse. These reports were picked up by Christianity Today last month, but some of these cases go back several decades. Brothers and sisters, would these victims of abuse have been dismissed or ignored or commanded away if they had been men? If they had been men who found their wives cheating on them or men who found their wives abusing their children, would they have been ignored? Will the men in charge at the church ever be held accountable for their disastrous counsel? The fact that I am, and perhaps some of you are, unsure in your answers to these questions, I mean, that says all there needs to be said about it. Why should there even be a hesitation in my mind when I think about what should happen? Patriarchy is real, brothers and sisters. Now, to be sure, not every instance of patriarchy is as overtly oppressive and abusive. And not all forms of patriarchy grow out of misogyny. And not all who accept a patriarchy-affirming interpretation of the Bible are themselves oppressive, abusive, or misogynistic. There are godly and faithful people to be found on every side of every interpretive debate to be had about what the Bible actually says, including this debate. But however we arrive at it, brothers and sisters, however we arrive at it, however we might feel about it, we must recognize the pervasiveness of patriarchy in both the world and in the church. The prioritization of men socially and legally is part of the air we breathe, and if any doubt it, perhaps it's become, but because it has become so normalized. Indeed, it was normalized for Aristotle, it was normalized for Greco-Roman society, and it is normalized for most of our world today. And brothers and sisters, to be honest, that makes me uncomfortable. It feels odd to agree with so much of the world on this matter. Though agreement with the world is not impossible, it should prompt us to wonder if we are understanding the word of God correctly. What if we were wrong? What if our first glance at Colossians 3:18 to 4:1 is wrong? What if Paul wasn't actually incorporating Roman patriarchy into Christian theology? Let's take a second glance at Paul's household code. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents in everything. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. If we sit at this passage for a second glance, we'll notice that these phrases really shouldn't be here. In most household codes of the ancient world, wives, children, and slaves weren't even addressed. So Dr. Douglas Moo observed, while other ancient household codes did occasionally address the subordinate members within the household, wives, children, slaves, they were especially concerned to maintain order and focused on the head of the household. Yet Paul chose to address each of these groups as persons with agency and with dignity, with the ability to choose. Again, Dr. Mu, Colossians 3, 18 to 4, 1, with the other New Testament codes is remarkable 
for the identical tone Paul uses in addressing each group. The identical tone Paul used to address the man of the household, it was the same across each group. But this isn't the only difference between Paul's household code and those of his contemporaries. Notice who Paul inserted into each relationship. Wives submit as is fitting in the Lord. Paul, I'm sorry, children obey for this pleases the Lord. Bond servants obey as for the Lord. Who is the ultimate authority in the Christian household? It is the Lord. It is Christ. Christ is Lord over the relationship between wife and husband, between child and father, between slave and master. It is his rule and reign and arbitration that holds sway over everyone and limits what husbands, fathers, and masters could ask of their wives, children, and slaves. It is difficult to overstate how shocking this would have been to the Colossian believers. As Dr. Mu put it, we must not overlook the degree to which the household codes are countercultural. They consistently reflect the new equality among persons that is intrinsic to the gospel. The explicit and repeated basis for the behavior Paul calls for in 3.18 to 4.1 is the lordship of Christ. And as Dr. Barr summarized, instead of endowing authority to a man who speaks and acts for those within his household, the Christian household codes offer each member of the shared community the right to hear and act for themselves. This is radically different from the Roman patriarchal structure. Dr. Barr even goes so far as to say the Christian structure of the house church resists, emphasis hers, resists, also mine, the patriarchal world of the Roman Empire. And we see this resistance especially clearly when we look at the commands Paul gave to wives and to husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands. The Greek word for submit, hupotasso, is a broader term than the word for obey applied to children, which we looked at last week. It does mean to subordinate oneself to another, but arguably in a less rigid way. But we shouldn't push that too far. It still expresses a self-denial that we should not downplay. This submission is qualified in two ways. First, the context of this command is the household not the public sphere. Paul's command was not for all women to submit to all men, as it is sometimes misunderstood. There's absolutely no room for this to be interpreted in the misogynistic ways that it sometimes has been. Secondly, this command is explicitly qualified by the phrase, as is fitting in the Lord, as we mentioned just a moment ago. The Greek is better translated in a manner that is proper in the Lord. The wife is to submit to her husband only in the way Christ the Lord would want her to submit. Do you see that? This isn't a small qualification, brothers and sisters. This qualification recasts the cultural expectation that wives submit to their husbands as an act of faith and obedience, not ultimately to their husbands, but to Christ. The wife's submission is first rendered to Christ and then to her husband, if and only if he is in alignment with Christ. As Dr. G.K. Beals explains, 
The wife's submission is not a blind obedience, but is an obedience to those things only that are consistent with living faithfully in relation to her Lord Jesus. And he goes on, the manner of wives' submission to their husbands is to be influenced by conforming their lives in the humble and sacrificial lifestyle of Christ together with striving for love, unity, and peace in Christ as well as living in subjection to Christ's word in scripture. Now think about what Dr. Beale just said there. Conforming their lives to the humble and sacrificial lifestyle of Christ Striving for love, unity, and peace in Christ. Living in subjection to Christ's word and scripture. Is any of this exclusive to wives? Is this kind of submission exclusive to wives? Is it only wives who should conform their lives to the humble and sacrificial lifestyle of Christ? Is it only women who should strive for love, unity, and peace in Christ and live in subjection to Christ's word and scripture? I hope our answer to these questions is a resounding no. Because this is simply what agape love looks like, brothers and sisters. Doesn't it sound as though Paul was commanding wives to do for their husbands what we all, as members of the one body of Christ, ought to do for one another though perhaps in different ways and degrees of intimacy. Consider Paul's repetition of this command in his letter to the Ephesian believers. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Many English translations struggle with the Greek grammar here. The verb submit does not actually appear in the Greek of verse 22. It is pulled from verse 21. In verse 21, the verb appears as a participle with the force of an imperative, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Most English translations lump this verse with the, the verses before it, instructions that were given to the entire church. And so the assumption is that this command is addressed to every member of the Ephesian church. It's a good assumption, it's correct. But what is often missed is that wives submitting to their husbands is actually presented as just one example, one expression of this mutual submission. The passage better reads, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. And again, this submission must be mutual. So Paul called the Ephesian husbands to play their part. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. In other words, husbands, your wives are not tools for your agendas. Your wives are not servants to satisfy your wants. You are to love your wives to agape your wives, to meet their needs even if it requires you to deny yourselves. Your wives are not deformed counterparts to your perfect selves, they are your bodies, so honor them. These commands would have been unheard of in the first century. You see, not only were wives viewed as deformed counterparts to their husbands, but there was typically a significant age gap between wives and their husbands. Men married women for the primary purpose of securing male heirs and extra farmhands. Women were married, therefore, as soon as they had their first menstrual cycle to maximize their birthing potential. 
On the other hand, men typically did not get married until they were well into adulthood. So not only were husbands considered essentially superior to their wives, but they were also superior in age and life experience, but also in education. Girls were denied education until marriage. Their older and more experienced husbands were to be their educators, teaching them, if they so chose, things like basic literacy. They were not allowed to learn how to read or write until they met their husband. The goal was to keep girls, and I mean this explicitly, we have archaeological data supporting this, the goal was to keep girls as pristinely infantile as possible, so that they would be nothing more than the imprint of their husbands. For an Ephesian husband then, to hear from Paul that he must submit himself to his wife would have been absolutely absurd. Are you kidding me? Why would I submit to her? Why would I deny myself for her? Her sole purpose for existence is to meet my needs. Paul, ask Aristotle. Paul's command to the Colossian believers carried no less weight. Husbands, love your wives. Dr. Mu once again offers some helpful context. The concern in the secular codes was usually effective household management. Referring to a husband's love for his wife would simply not fit this purpose. And indeed, no other code we have discovered from the ancient world requires husbands to love their wives. But Paul did. Paul did require this of Christian husbands, and he did not condition their love on reciprocation from their wives. Paul did not command the Colossian husbands to love their wives if and only if they submit to their husbands. As Dr. Beale puts it, the husband's responsibility to wives focuses on loving them. There is no suggestion that they are to demand subjection from them. This command stands out against the Greco-Roman background of familial expectations. And in a further step away from his Greco-Roman context, Paul added, do not be harsh with them. Dr. N.T. Wright offers an insightful explication of this clause. The husband must scrupulously avoid the temptation to resent his wife being the person she is, to become bitter or angry when she turns out to be, like him, a real human being, and not merely the projection of his own hopes or fantasies. Oof. Denying themselves to meet their wives' needs, not, o- not only to resent them for not meeting expectations for reciprocity, is not what Paul meant when he called the married to mutual submission. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Both sides of the marriage are called to agape love that reflects the self-denying love of Christ. But if husbands and wives have the same calling, why didn't Paul just say so? Why didn't Paul use the same language in his commands? And for that matter, why structure his commands according to the patriarchal household codes of the Greco-Roman world? Why follow the structure? Well, this is where things get really juicy, brothers and sisters. And this is where all of us, whether we are married or not, have something to take away from today's passage 
Dr. Barr offers us an answer to our questions. The early church, she explains, was trying to live within a non-Christian and increasingly hostile world. Does that sound familiar? They needed to fit in, but they also needed to uphold the gospel of Christ. They had to uphold the frame of Roman patriarchy as much as they could, but they also had to uphold the worth and dignity of each human being made in the image of God. In writing his version of the Greco-Roman household code, Paul acknowledged the reality of life in the first century. Paul understood the frameworks and structures and systems that dominated their lives. Paul understood that the church, small as it was, had little hope of changing these frameworks, structures, and systems from the outside in. So Paul wanted them to change them from the inside out. Maintaining the categories of patriarchy, Paul changed their contents so dramatically that if anyone saw his household code in practice, they would not be able to recognize it as Greco-Roman patriarchy. You see, brothers and sisters, Paul Christ is not threatened by patriarchy. He is not afraid of humankind's frameworks and structures and systems. Rather, they are the backdrop for revealing Christ's unrivaled glory. If this reading of Paul is correct, then we can safely conclude that Paul would have agreed with Christian author Carolyn Custis James that patriarchy is not the Bible's message, rather it is the fallen cultural backdrop that sets off in the strongest relief the radical nature and potency of the Bible's gospel message. And this goes for all the frameworks and structures and systems that we've used to prop up our societies and cultures, including slavery, as we'll see, God willing, in a few months. These are all merely expressions of a godless survivalism born out of the fall, the cultural backdrop against which the gospel shines. And it can shine through us, brothers and sisters. As we live within these frameworks and structures and systems, we have the spiritual power to so fill them with Christ, with his love and truth, that they transform them from the inside out into something wholly unrecognizable to this world. Our world idolizes power, brothers and sisters, and those who have worldly power do all they can to keep it. They pass legislation, they declare doctrines, and they codify roles to protect their worldly power. And why wouldn't they? Without God to depend on, without hope for the life to come, without the love of Christ living in their hearts, how else would we expect the world to behave? But we do have the love of Christ, brothers and sisters. We do have the hope of his return. We do have faith in God's presence and provision. So for us, worldly power holds no allure. Worldly power offers no temptation and it finds no purchase in our hearts because what could political power or social power or economic power or household power give us that Christ has not already given to us? We do not idolize worldly power. Rather, we use whatever power we have in this world to show agape love to others. We use whatever position we have in this world to show agape love to others. We use whatever the world has given us, even patriarchy, 
to do something the world would never do with it. Show agape love to others. Brothers and sisters, if our passage has called us to anything, it has called us to non-conforming agape love with whatever power and from whatever position we have. And that is something we can all affirm, whether married or unmarried, whether conservative or liberal, whether male or female. So let whoever has power use it as Christ used his. And let those who do not have power redefine their submission as to Christ alone. And in so doing, may all power structures be transformed into a tantalizingly unrecognizable preview of God's kingdom. For this final sermon in this series on Colossians, I've offered you one way to read Colossians 3, 18 through 19. And perhaps it suggests ways to read other passages in the Bible. Studying those passages is a journey worth taking, but perhaps an individual speaking from a platform is not always the best way to explore them. Perhaps it would be better to study them in the safety of a shared meal, in the context of a forgiving conversation, in the fellowship of believers, united by the one spirit of Christ and the one body of Christ under the one word of Christ, which is bigger than any one person's assumptions or beliefs. Don't get me wrong, I'm so grateful that you listen to me. <laughs> At least consider what I have to say. But maybe some of these topics are things we need to do in more of a family room setting. Maybe we need to look into each other's eyes and understand the hurt and the pain that the other side has felt, and both sides have felt hurt and pain. And maybe we need to receive one another in empathy and compassion, understanding that we don't understand. Understanding that there's so much in the word of God we don't understand. But that we have been given this opportunity by faith to try our best, and then to try again, and again, and again, until we feel the Father's arms wrapping around us and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You did what you could with the time that you had. Maybe as we study these passages, maybe as you study these passages on your own, maybe you'll come to the same conclusions I have, and maybe you won't, but I believe there's grace for that. There's room for that. And I also believe, though, that we cannot disagree on this one thing, that Christ is near to the powerless, and that those with power must use their power as Christ used his. And the frameworks, structures, and systems of this world must be transformed from the inside out by the agape love of Christ. And as an example of the transforming power of Christ, wives and husbands should so submit to one another that the world would be unable to recognize its own broken patriarchy in their love. May these things be realized among us, brothers and sisters. I'd like to invite you now, as the praise team returns to the stage, to take a moment and just sit with what we've heard and just receive what there is to receive, to ask what there needs to be asked.
and to remember above all that we as a family can work through these questions together. That there's mercy and kindness, safety and grace because of the love of Christ for us. Maybe something you heard today struck a chord. Maybe there's something you need to grieve and release to God. Maybe there are things you heard today that you disagree with and you're not sure how you feel about it. Or maybe you are sure. That's okay too, you can bring that to God as well. Have that conversation with him in the humility and the love that we are freely able to exercise because we know we're already accepted and beloved by God. So let's just take a moment and reflect before our praise team leads us in closing worship. We receive now this benediction. As you go from this place into the various spheres of power or non-power that God has invited you into, may you be filled with his power to love and to serve, to graciously meet the needs of others, even at cost to yourself, to use all that God has given you to bring all glory to who he is. And in this way, may you guys live lives centered on Christ. Amen.